Well, in the words of the great Pastor Chris Carr, good morning, Harmony. (laughs) My name is Christian Fry, and I typically lead worship here at this campus, but this morning I have the great privilege of preaching from God's Word. And if you noticed, uh, our campus pastor, Matt Mitchell, was actually up here just a, a few minutes ago leading worship. He did a great job. Let's give him a hand. Yeah. And then here I am serving in a role that he typically fulfills. And so, Matt, it's like we've officially traded places. How about that? That being said, if you have any uh, comments or critiques about the music here, how it needs to be quieter or just better, uh, feel free to send those to Matt this week. I can get you his email address afterwards. On the contrary, if you're wanting to compliment the campus on how vibrant leadership is, you know, how good the experience is here, I'd be glad to take those this week. So you can send those to me. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me and... uh, Let's meet in 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9, we're going to continue on through our No King But Jesus series that we've been in these last couple months. And uh, we're actually kind of rounding third on this series. Four weeks from today, we'll be concluding it. And I hope it's been, I pray that it's been uh, encouraging to you, edifying to you in your walk. And I'm excited to, to see what God has for us in our text this morning. As you open your Bibles, before we dig in, I want to talk a little Iowa with you. Can we do that? Can we talk Iowa? I'm not from here originally. I think most of you know that. And so these last um, four or five years that I've lived here, I've been figuring you guys out. I've been trying to figure you guys out. Let's put it that way. You're looking at me like, good luck, dude. Um, But in my acclimating, I've been made aware of this idea or or this concept, Iowa nice. You guys heard heard about this? This is what people are saying about us. Iowa nice. You're Iowa nice. Or, oh, that's Iowa nice. And if if, if this is a new concept to you, um, it's, it's, I guess, legit enough for there to be a Wikipedia definition of it. And I'm going to read that for you because, you know, Wikipedia is reliable. Iowa nice. A cultural label used to describe the stereotypical attitudes and behaviors of residents within the U.S. state of Iowa, particularly in terms of the friendly agreeableness and emotional trust shown by individuals who are otherwise strangers. So um, whether you realize that this is something that goes on in our state or not, I think we've all probably um, been guilty of portraying this sort of Iowa Iowa niceness. I know we've certainly been guilty of receiving it, Um, but nonetheless, I, I have a couple examples for you that I've collected just through my own observation. And then, of course, the internet is helpful here. Um, So Iowa nice is, here you go. Iowa nice is when you had a lengthy telephone conversation with someone who dialed the wrong number. (laughs) Iowa niceness is when someone in Menards offers you assistance and they don't even work there. (laughs) I I know some of you guys have portrayed that one. Iowa nice is when it takes you at least 20 minutes to say goodbye to a person, especially after church on Sundays. Iowa nice is when you pull up to a two or a four-way stop and the driver who's already been sitting there waves you on to go first. I'm from out east where we drive like maniacs, so this has been really tough for me to get used to. Iowa nice is when you feel the need to apologize to a person just because they happen to be in the same aisle of you at high V. You know what this is like? You're not even in each other's ways. They're going this way, you're going this way, and you can't help it. You're just kind of like, oh, excuse me. And it's like, you're not even in each other's ways. Why are you saying sorry? If you still don't get it, here's a really specific 
um, and detailed example that I, that I, I did see on, I think it was social media. I think you'll like it. Iowa Nice is when you buy a TV that doesn't fit in your car, and the man in the truck parked next to you says, just put it in the back. I have to pick up a few things. I'll drop it off later. What's your address? About a half an hour later, the truck pulls into the driveway. The man helps you get your, the large box into the house, install the TV, refuses any sort of payment, and waves back at you as he drives away as if you're old friends. <laughs> oh, and by the way, you never even caught his name. <laughs> Needless to say, I am proud to live in a state known for their niceness. I mean, come on, go Iowa, right? Yes. This morning, uh, we're going to talk about a, a biblically noteworthy demonstration of, of not just niceness, but rather deep and profound kindness shown by King David. We're going to learn about the story of a man named Mephibosheth. Go ahead and say that one with me. Mephibosheth. Right? You sound like you're speaking in tongues. What a name. What a name. Sounds made up, but uh, the reality is Mephibosheth was, was a very real person, and this account of his life, even though it's pretty brief and insignificant, uh, has some beautiful and profound truths uh, that I think we can learn from as, as we draw near his life and uh, specifically his relationship with King David. Before we dig in, uh, to give some brief reminders uh, and, and kind of context here as to what's been going on in 2 Samuel, the first chapter of 2 Samuel Remember, Saul and Jonathan uh, die in battle. And this is kind of a big deal because then in, in chapters two through five, we see uh, kind of an, an eruption go on between the house of Saul and the house of David because David wants to be king and he has to fight his way to get there. And so naturally then in chapters six through eight, we read of David setting up his kingdom and doing so handedly. We're not gonna spend much time in Second um, Samuel eight, but if you see here uh, the title of it, right? David's victories. David's victories. And at first glance, you can see um, that, that David is, is kicking butt and taking names. I mean, he is on the warpath. Notice uh, verses 13 and 14 there, they, they, they read, David made a name for himself, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. It's a pretty good place to be. So think about some of the great dynasties of sports history, right? Um, the, the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, right? Michael Jordan's teams. And yes, if the sermon tanks, at least I mentioned Michael Jordan. That'll count for something for Chris Carr, I think. We'll see. The Bulls in the 90s. Uh, more recently, the New England Patriots. Controversial, yes, but dominating team. More recently, um, the Golden State Warriors, right? A couple months ago, they, they win another title. And I know if you're not into sports, I may as well be speaking French. But all that matters is um, that these, these dynasties, these teams will forever be cemented in the, histories, uh, the history books of pro sports for the way they dominated year in and year out. And, and frankly, even though that's kind of like the, the, one of the best uh, illustrations we have for what David was doing at this point uh, in time, they, they pale in comparison. Because remember, this is, this is the era of ancient warfare. So David's not working with, David's not working with, with tanks and um, missiles, right? Nuclear warfare, that, that's, he's got none of that. He's got like bows and arrows um, and chariots and horses. I mean, it's crude stuff. Yet, he's able to grow his kingdom to encompass 60,000 square miles, scholars tell us. 60,000 square miles. I have a, a three-bed, two-bath house that I can barely stay on top of. This dude's sitting on 60,000 square miles. We'll talk Iowa again, right, for some, for some context. Iowa is roughly 56,000 square miles. So King David's kingdom right now encompasses a landmass that's larger than the state of Iowa. 
He is on top of the world. Lastly, before we, we dig into our text, this actually isn't the first time that we read about Mephibosheth. And with a name like that, I'm surprised you missed it or forgot. But it seems, um, it seems like Disney is obsessed with origin stories, right? Like there are characters from when I was a kid that, that are having these, these whole feature-length films made about them. I think there's one on like Buzz Lightyear right now in theaters. We get an origin story from Mephibosheth. We're not, we're not going to um, turn there necessarily. It'll be on the screen though. 2 Samuel 4.4. Here it is. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son. So Mephibosheth is um, Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson, right? Had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That news being that they're dead. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So pretty, pretty tragic life for Mephibosheth at this point. Again, he's, he's Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, meaning that he's born into a pretty powerful family. But when he's just five years old, the empire comes crumbling down, killing both his grandfather and father. And if that wasn't bad enough, as his nurse is fleeing with him, she drops him and he's left crippled for the rest of his life. It gets worse. Considering the fact that David is now king, Mephibosheth's life is in jeopardy, as any king worth his robe back then uh, would have ensured their rule by wiping out any possible remnants or uh, previous reigning family so that they could ensure no one was going to threaten them, right? Which in this case would obviously be Mephibosheth, since he comes from the bloodline of Saul and Jonathan. So Mephibosheth is trying to avoid being found out at all costs from, from King David, right? Which is hard enough to do in and of itself, when you're, when you're dealing with 60,000 square feet of land. But on top of that, again, he's crippled. So it's next to impossible. So now what? Well, let's read. 2 Samuel 9. I'm going to read this whole chapter. Um, so it's a little long, but buckle up and uh, hang with me if you could. 2 Samuel 9. And David said, Is there still anyone of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I should show the kindness of God to him? So real quick here, notice Ziba is actually Saul's, one of Saul's previous servants. And as David's trying to figure out, is there anyone left in this bloodline that I can show kindness to? Naturally, he goes to one of Saul's servants and says, look, who do you got? Is there anyone left? Noteworthy. Ziba said to the king, there still, is, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then, then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, behold, I am your servant. David said to him, do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. 15 sons, that's a lot of testosterone. 
I lost my place thinking about that. Jeez. Uh, 11. 11, thank you. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that the Lord, that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. So the first, uh, first thing we need to address is the word kindness here in verse 1. Right? You see that? We have, is there still anyone left? David's saying this. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness? This isn't just uh, like a character counts, moral sort of kindness, right? It's not, it's not an Iowa nice sort of kindness, I by no means speak or read Hebrew, but I think uh, referencing the biblical language here is helpful in giving us a true definition. The word kindness here is derived from the Hebrew word hased. Hased. Go ahead and say that with me. Hased. You speak Hebrew now. Check that out. Translates to God's steadfast, committed, loving kindness for his people. God's steadfast, committed, loving kindness for his people. And this is interesting because the word hased is used elsewhere in the Bible. But more often than not, it's used to describe God's love for man rather than man's love for man. You got that? Usually describing God's love for man, not man's love for man. So it's significant. It's a significant kind of love, which is why it's interesting that David is using that to describe the the sort of loving kindness that he wants to show right now. Going back to the text, notice on whose behalf David is eager to show this particular kindness to. Jonathan's sake, right? Right? that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, it's helpful to back up here again, too, because um, it's important to note that David and Jonathan were very good friends, almost like brothers. And in 1 Samuel 20, we actually read of an oath made between them. And in that oath, Jonathan is realizing more and more that um, Saul, his dad's days as king, are numbered. And it's actually David who's soon going to become king because David has the favor of the Lord, which is hard to compete with. Chris highlighted this a few weeks ago when he compared and contrasted David and Saul's response to God's grace. Remember this? We see David repeatedly respond and repent. Respond and repent. Whereas Saul never does so. And so Jonathan is also observant of these differences between his father and his friend. And he goes on to do something here um, that's that's pretty unprecedented. Remember what I said about kings at that time would, would kind of go back and, and make sure the, the bloodlines of the previous uh, kings and kingdoms were wiped out, right? Jonathan's going to David and say, saying, don't be like every other king. Don't, don't be like my dad. I, I know the, the realities of our family have pinned us against each other, but please, show grace, show mercy, show kindness. Moving back to our text, as we uh, continue to kind of see this coming-of-age story unfold. It's important to note where Mephibosheth was living at the time David summoned him. Verse 5, King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Type Lodabar into Google Maps to see what comes up. Just kidding. Nothing will come up. I tried it. It's like a contractor's name in Ohio or something. I don't know. But uh, there is significance to this place being named It translates to the place of no pasture, no word, no communication. It's a wasteland. Kind of like the Westland Mall. You've been in the Westland Mall recently? It's a wasteland. There's nothing going on there. Which, which 
is a really good place for someone like Mephibosheth to hide out, right? He's trying to avoid being found by David. So you can imagine the fear that rises up in Mephibosheth when David's servant finds him and says, hey, uh, king needs to see you. You ever had those moments, right? Work, co- a coworker comes up to you, hey man, boss needs to see you. And you're like, oh jeez. You're thinking of like every bad thing you've ever done on and off the clock. Students in the room, right? Friend comes up to you, hey man, teacher needs to see you. That's why the text says he falls on his face and says, I'm your servant, please don't kill me. Doesn't say please don't kill me, but that's probably what he was thinking. Notice David's response though. Do not fear. I will show you kindness. Imagine, imagine that relief washing over Mephibosheth. So this kindness, we talked a lot about kindness this morning. What does it represent here? This is important. Three things. It'll be on the screen. Three things. The first being wealth. Verse 7. David restores to Mephibosheth all his father's land, which is huge because land was everything back then. If you had If you had land, you had wealth. And David doesn't just stop there because secondly, he offers Mephibosheth status. For one, he continues on in verse seven to say, you shall eat at my table always. This is huge because he's taking taking this this kid who he doesn't really even know, who's who's a a no-name, physically handicapped person that's been living in in a wasteland. And he says, you're going to sit at my table. The king's table, as you can imagine, a lot of important things happened there. A lot of big decisions got made. And now, all of a sudden, Mephibosheth, he's got a seat at that table. Not to mention, the food was probably killer. Status. Secondly, verse 10, you see David say to Ziba, you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring him in the produce. Again, 15 sons, 20 servants. That's over 30 servants like that. Again, for for someone who's a no-name. Significant. Pretty good gig too, right? They're going to go out and they're going to work all the gardens, all the land and bring them in the produce. This time of year, everyone's got zucchini, right? So I kind of feel like Mephibosheth because everyone's like, here's a zucchini. Take it, please. (laughs) Sweet, bring it on. Between the wealth and status granted to Mephibosheth, thirdly, David gives Mephibosheth an identity. An identity. He takes a no-name, crippled orphan, living in exile, literally fearful for his life, and restores him by gifting him a fortune and seating him at his royal table to eat there like he were a son for the rest of his life. When I was growing up, we'd see a movie that kind of illustrated biblical principles or themes um, or had maybe like Christ-like characters or character arcs. Narnia is a really good example of this. It's actually really common though. My wife and I were just in the theater a couple months ago the Westland Mall Theater. And uh, there, was a, there was this main character of the movie that everyone loved, right? You're rooting for him. And there's a moment in which you think he dies. And you can kind of just feel the energy in the whole, um, the whole room, the whole theater shift. Everyone's like, oh no, right? A couple minutes later, what happens? The music starts to build. The, the scene intensifies. And there's this big moment, this big reveal. He's not dead. And you can kind of just feel everyone like, oh, I knew it. I knew he couldn't have been dead. And... I think this points out, this is, this is kind of unrelated to the text, but this points out a really interesting fact in that the story of Jesus is the greatest story ever told. Amen? Amen. The story of, of a man laying his life down for not just the ones that he loves, but the ones who are his enemy that he loves. is the greatest story ever told. And Hollywood, no matter how much money, no matter how much influence, no matter how many famous actors and actresses they have, they can't get over it. 
That's encouraging to us. That should be encouraging to us as Christians because not only do we believe in that story, but in a sense, the world can't help but be drawn to it. But anyways, when we see stories like this, my dad would say, every story has two stories. Every story has two stories. So while the story in our text today is primarily about David's kindness to Mephibosheth, there's also a much bigger story, a much more personal story that's being illuminated here, right? You know where I'm going with this. It's the story of Christ's loving kindness for us. We are the lame, poor Mephibosheth, presumably and rightfully abandoned, forsaken, living in exile, and constant fear and shame of an almighty king that could and should effortlessly kill us. But then, in a fortunate turn of events, King Jesus, betrayed by King David, from the heights of his powerful, almighty throne, exudes unmerited loving kindness and grace. David sent a servant, Christ sends himself as our sacrifice. And in doing so, calls our name. And he hasn't just promised us an endless surplus of spiritual riches and prosperity, but he's also invited us to dine next to him at his royal table. His sons, his daughters, a covenantal union that binds us forever. That's wealth. That's status. That's identity. What a gorgeous picture and promise to draw near to this morning. There's a great song about this story. And yes, I predictably am going to reference a song in my sermon. Classic worship leader move, I know. It was written by a, a guy named Leland Mooring, who's a pretty prolific uh, songwriter, worship leader. Uh, he's written songs like Lion and the Lamb that we sing here. He uh, popularized the song Waymaker a few years ago. But the song is called Carry to the Table. And it was released uh, over 15 years ago now, but it's, it's kind of special to me because it's actually the, um, the means by which I first heard about this story and, and read it. And, and honestly, it's been one of my favorite Bible stories ever since, which makes it a, a unique privilege and honor for me to preach, preach it this morning. But the, the lyrics are masterfully written, uh, as I think the song beautifully ties together the, the narrative of Mephibosheth and David back then with the, the heart of the gospel now. And I'm not going to sing it. Sorry, I'm off the clock. But uh, I wanted to read, read through the lyrics for you uh, to reflect on. Wounded and forsaken, I was shattered by the fall. Broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone. Summoned by the king and to the master's courts. Lifted by a savior, cradled in his arms. I was carried to the table. Seated where I don't belong. Carried to the table swept away by his love. And I don't see my brokenness anymore when I'm seated at the table of the Lord. I'm carried to the table, the table of the Lord. Fighting thoughts of fear, wondering why you've called my name. Am I good enough to share this cup? This world has left me lame. Even in my weakness, the Savior calls my name. In his holy presence, I am healed and unashamed. I'm carried to the table. The table of the Lord. How amazing is it to think about what that table will actually look like, right? You ever done that? Seated there with Jesus. With David. With Mephibosheth. Moses, Noah, Esther, Peter, Mary, Paul, 
C.S. Lewis, Charles Spurgeon, Elizabeth Elliot, Billy Graham, could go on. For some of us, uh, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, ancestors we've never even known. Siblings. For many of you, children. In some cases, children you haven't seen in a long time. And for others, children that you've never really even got to know. Realistically, you can't, you can't even begin to fathom that, right? It's too unnatural, too surreal. But it will be real because the Bible says it's real. Colossians 1, I love it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory. That's our hope. Glory. And not just our glory. Actually, definitely not our glory. The glory of God the Father and the testimony of Jesus Christ the Son. Revelation 19 alludes to this too. Marriage supper of the Lamb, right? Big wedding feast that will put Pinterest boards to shame. It says, blessed are those who are invited to it. Again, talk about wealth, status, identity. Nothing compares to the embrace. We're saying that this morning. I love that. Nothing compares to the embrace of an eternal father. So it's actually good to pause here and take time to, I think, just reflect on the sweetness of our salvation, the grandeur of our conversion. Psalm 51, 12 which fittingly was, was written by King David as well, um, reads this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I wonder, when's, when's the last time you let the joy of your salvation renew you? Can we just do, let this story help us do that? Can we let the power of our testimony, the, the miracle of the gospel, humble us, restore us, Because that has to be the foundation for which we can ever live lives that are sanctified and lives that are righteous, lives that are holy. We have to know where that power comes from. It's the power of the cross. Let the joy of salvation restore you this morning. And then what? Be upheld with a willing spirit. God, help me, help me to have a spirit that's ready to go, that's ready to live on mission for you. Because I'm just, I'm so joyous over the fact that you called me your own. Have a willing spirit because of the joy of your salvation. Moving forward from that, uh, I think sometimes when we look at these stories about David, it's hard or almost dangerous to see ourselves as David. Several months ago, um, Matt preached on David and Goliath, right? And, and one of the big key moments in that sermon, I remember, was uh, we're not David in the story. Hate to break it to you, we don't get to be the, the, the hero that slays the giant. And so often, that, that's, that's how we need to read these stories. Maybe when he royally screws up, I can actually see myself when, when that happens. But uh, the man after God's own heart, right? That's what David's called. That's, that's not usually who I am. It's usually Christ in me. However, in this story, I think David sets an example for us that's worth emulating. And really simply, I think we just need to ask ourselves this question. Who are the Mephibosheths 
in your life? Who are the Mephibosheths in your life? The people, the crippled people in your life that need to be shown the kindness of Jesus. Crippled physically? Sure. What about socially, intellectually, emotionally, financially, relationally? Because if we claim to be followers of Jesus, or sometimes even if people just know that we go to church, we have a lot more influence over the people in our lives than we probably realize. Because they look at us and they see people who have peace, who have joy, who have hope, even if they don't agree with it. And while we're not royalty like David, um, these people, not only do they look up to us, not only do they look to us, but sometimes they look up to us. Especially amidst the, the turmoil, the craziness that has gripped our world in recent years, right? The contrast has, in some ways, never been more obvious. Now hear me, I'm not saying that this means you need to have all the answers, Just because people are are looking to you or looking up to you doesn't mean you need to be ready to bombard them with Christianese. In fact, the book of James encourages us to do the opposite, right? Quick to listen, slow to speak. It's simple. Oftentimes, a lot of people in our lives long to sit at our table. Literally, sure. But figuratively, absolutely. They long to be seen by us to be encouraged by us, to be loved by us. Sometimes people, they just want to be known by someone. And the miraculous thing that happens is when we start doing this faithfully, people stop seeing us, right? They start seeing Christ in us. And I'm not saying either that there, is, there isn't a time and place for confronting the hard question, questions that the world throws at us or calling out sin where we see it. But perhaps those conversations would start at much better places if they were built upon relationships shaped by the loving kindness of a God who first loved us. And if I can be vulnerable with you guys this morning, carrying myself with this sort of Holy Spirit-infused kindness can be one of the hardest parts of the Christian walk, right? Hypocrisy, that's easy. It's a little too easy. This, this is hard. I don't have time for this. You ever said that? Do you know what that person's done? I'm not equipped to deal with them. I only have so much bandwidth. It's like the Iowa nice way of saying it. I only have so much bandwidth. How about this one? People are crazy. Some of you use a lot different words than crazy. I'm throwing out these scenarios because I have said every single one, more than once. But that's why this text has to convict us. We read more about the life of David than anyone else in scripture. You know that? Outside of the life of Jesus, obviously, we read more about the life of David than anyone else in our Bibles. Which tells us something. David lived a life worth pressing into. Back to us um, not being the David of of the story. Can I tell you something? We actually have it a lot easier than David, right? Because we know the perfect David. We know the ultimate David. We sit at his eternal table. 
We were shown kindness by him, not just when we were crippled, but when we were dead. He didn't call us out of the wilderness. He called us out of our grave. Church family, that has to motivate us to be glad bearers of this said, distinguished, loving kindness. A pastor who's preaching I regularly sat under in college um, used to tell this story. Several years ago, he was a youth pastor, and, and one summer, uh, his youth group had a, a pretty special week at camp. And there was a girl um, who, who came to know the Lord in a, in a radical way, and uh, just, a, just an awesome experience for this youth group and, and for this pastor even. Later that fall, she got her first boyfriend. And uh, she wanted to take him hunting with her. One of her favorite things to do. And as they were hunting, uh, the boyfriend was on a four-wheeler and as he was getting off um, the gun he had, accidentally discharged. It took the life of this girl. Now, I, I know I'm a new parent, but I can't even begin to imagine that. I, I don't have a category for it. As they, were, as they were making preparations for this funeral, the dad, father of this young girl, reached out to the boyfriend. He said, listen, when we have this funeral, I want you to sit with our family. And I want you to sit right next to me because we forgive you. That's radical loving kindness. And that's the loving kindness that Christ receives us with. May the beauty of our salvation, may the preciousness of the gospel wash us in a new way this morning. And as it does that, may we allow this text to transform the willingness of our hearts so that we aren't just a, we aren't just a United States known for their niceness. No, we're a church known for their radical loving kindness. And in doing so, may we point the people around us to the goodness and the glory of Jesus, our Savior, our friend, 